The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles, hopefully not for like the last ever time, but like for the last time for our purposes in our uh, Sunday verse-by-verse study, turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible or an iPad app or one of those kind of things, just stick a hand up nice and high, and uh, someone will make sure that you get one of those, and uh, we would love to have you follow around. If you don't have a Bible, that's a gift to you, and we pray that the Lord would just use that to teach you more and more about his will for your life, his grace, and his goodness. Um, I have a couple of announcements while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6. Women's spring retreat today is the last day that you have to sign up, so make sure you stop and talk to the gals at the info desk on the way out, ladies. Men, if you're looking for a last minute or a, well, it's not really last minute yet, if you want to plan ahead on a Mother's Day gift, that would probably be a good one. Um, Also, Mobile Pack Rogue Valley. So Jason and Jesse Licato, are you guys here? Is Jason and Jesse here? Where are they at? Uh, we need a Bible down front, guys. Where's Jason and Jesse? Jesse's here. J- will you stand up just really quick? I'm sorry, but we need somebody to know, right? Okay, this is Jesse. There's Jason. Um, he's way less good looking, um, but married to her. And they are going to go and they're going to be able to uh, to meet with, with anyone who's interested in this. They're actually kicking off a, a whole new um, program that's going to be uh, uh, kicking off here in the valley coming up called Mobile Pack Road Valley. That's really just a, a, a ministry that's, uh, is it worldwide, Jesse? Is that right? It's a worldwide organization to feed the hungry. And um, so if you're looking for opportunities to serve, to do things that are making a real and tangible impact and would like that, then uh, this is a great opportunity for you. So they have an informational meeting come up and they would love to touch base with you. The organization they're partnering with is called Feed My Starving Children, if you've heard about that. And um, so that's coming up here pretty soon. And then also along the same kind of lines, the Veterans Meal Outreach, which is going to be a ministry of our food pantry, um, is going to be meeting, let's see, May 21st, Saturday at 5 o'clock. So that's about a month from now. You've got some time in advance. But um, they're going to be providing some meals through a Veterans Outreach. And what they need are either cash check donations or volunteers. There's a table located in the foyer for your convenience. And uh, if you have any questions, you can get a hold of those guys. They'll be available out there right after the service as well. I think that's all it is. So uh, if you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to open in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to come together with you this morning. God, we thank you for the gift of opening your word. We thank you, Lord, for this extended season, Lord. We're almost a year now studying the book of Ephesians. And I pray, God, that you would just uh, continue to minister to us through your word this morning. I pray, God, that you would uh, awaken hearts, enliven minds, even imaginations as we study your word this morning. And that, God, your spirit would move in this place and, and show us your church. Show us your will for us, Lord. So, God, as we often pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. My King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. Hey, is that feedback, Josh? Is that me? We don't know. Who knows? Free gift to you guys this morning, a little mic feedback. I'm going to move it away some just in case. 
so it's probably Jeremy from last week. It's, uh, so, so from what I understand, last week while I was gone, um, our youth pastor taught for an hour and 20 minutes and taught you how to do drugs all in the same sermon. Is that true? Am I hearing the truth on that? All right. Um, we all, we have one more announcement. Heritage is actually hiring a youth pastor here now. Um, we have an opening immediately. If you'd like to turn in your application, <laughs> oh, oh man, no, Jeremy did a great job and, and, and he, he had quite a challenge ahead of him and it's really hard to work through that entire passage, that, that section and only one time. And he did a fantastic job of it. So I'm really thankful for the teaching that we have here at this church. Um, it's a real um, I, I know other pastors that I'm friends with who they freak out and grieve and worry for weeks when they know they're going to be gone because they're like, man, what, I don't know what it's going to look like while I'm gone. I don't know who we have. I don't know who I have available. And that is not a worry for me at Heritage. I assure you of that. And I'm really thankful for that. Amen. Amen. But today I'm going to actually make a sermon out of Paul's saying goodbye. The last four verses of the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read them together and then we'll dive in. And and in the course of the sermon, I'm going to spend some time talking to you guys and and telling you a little bit about what I uh, had the opportunity to do just last week. So beginning in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says this. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Or some translations would say with a love unending. Today we will close out the book of Ephesians. Next week we have the joy of being able to start one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, um, the book of Philippians. And uh, it's going to be a really fruitful time for us. The book of, a Philippi- of Philippians is a, uh, um, just a fantastic, fantastic study about how to go through difficulty in life, understanding the gospel of Jesus and with grace, how to minister to others who are going through difficult seasons, about the hope that we have even in hardship. It's a fantastic letter, and I'm really excited about that. Um, But we're closing out the book of Ephesians here after almost a year. We started this, I believe it was June 7th of last year was when we started the book of Ephesians. Had no idea it was going to take us a year almost, Um, and it didn't. It took 11 months, so we're good. Um, it, what a fantastic book and what a fantastic time this has been. Um, the, the Lord has really used this book, I believe, to, to craft and shape all sorts of things throughout our church. But as you know, the thing that we keep coming back to over and over and over as we study the book of Ephesians is this idea of identity. The theme that we focused on, and there's a few, but the theme that we really focused on in the book of Ephesians is the book of identity. And that, that is this. The book starts out with the first three chapters teaching us who we are in Christ. What Christ has done for us, how that's affected us, and who we are now as believers in Christ in light of his work for us. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, talk about, now what does life look like for those who are this? So always, and we've, we've hammered on this, always throughout the scriptures, the identity comes before the action. Always. God is constantly wanting to talk to us and make sure we understand this is who we are in Christ. And because of that, this is what we do. If you get it the other way around, that's called religion. 
That is, I will do these things, and because I do these things, it makes me this. And so for many of us, that was our idea of church for a long, long time, even within the Christian faith. To be a Christian, I need to don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't watch rated R movies, don't listen to secular music, don't, 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 don't. And then we do. We go to church, we tithe, we give, we, we all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We memorize Bible verses, whatever the thing might have been. And we believe that that is what makes someone a Christian. And for a lot of people, if you were to say, hey, describe a Christian, that's where they would start. They would say, well, a Christian is someone who doesn't drink, doesn't, and they go into this kind of morality. Now, is morality part of the Christian experience? Is there such a thing as a, if you will, Christian code of ethics that every Christian should seek to live and follow through with? Absolutely. But that's not what makes you a Christian. The thing that makes you a Christian, the only thing that makes you a Christian is the work that Jesus Christ did on your behalf, his life, death, and resurrection. Nothing you did plays into the definition of what is a Christian. It might fit into what does a Christian do, but that's asking about what someone who's already a Christian, what does their life look like? But the idea of what is a Christian, nowhere in there does it say, well, a Christian is someone who does blah, 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 blah. Ephesians makes it so clear that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only thing that makes us a Christian is that in spite of our broken, battered, sinful condition, the grace of God has appeared on our lives. And he has shown us the Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we could never live, who died and experienced the death, sin, and wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, but who rose from the dead and has ascended into heaven, defeating death and is preparing a place for those who would seek to follow him. It is belief in that that makes us a Christian, no matter how many tithes you ever give, no matter how many cuss words you do or don't say, no matter how many rated R movies you ever see or how many Petra CDs you own. CDs, that's probably cassettes, right? Young people, you don't even want to know. Don't worry about it. The only thing that makes you a Christian is the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's it. Totally should have got an amen out of that. You know what I'm saying, Colton? Especially you, Colton. Come on, we're boys. This is the gospel. This is the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, he has saved us. And, and not just saved us like now we're good because all of our mistakes are forgiven. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more proactive than that. He has saved us and then brought us in. He's adopted us. Like we're not just people that are forgiven. We're now his kids. It's a whole nother level. Like he loves us, he delights in us, he has joy for us, he's destined us to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That is a mind-blowing thought. I mean, what does Christ own? Answer, everything. And the Bible says you are joint heirs with Christ. That, that you're now somehow, because of the righteousness of Christ and because of his act and because of the incredible grace of God, it's as if positionally you're put in that same place. It's unbelievable. There's so much to the gospel that we fail to tap into, meditate on, or really understand. And the idea, the reason Paul says this, the reason scripture is always like this is because he's saying, look, it's this understanding 
It's the understanding of how good God has been to you, how much he loves you, that should then become the motivating fact that changes your life. It it should be the, the desire to want to serve and please a God who loves you so much. That's what causes Christian morality and Christian living and all those things. And that's true, right? Would we agree with that? That's true? Three people? Man, you guys are scared to death I'm going to teach for an hour and a half like Jeremy did last week. Just wake up. I swear I'm not. It is absolutely true that it should be the grace and goodness of God that motivates us to want to serve God. But here's the actual truth, though. That's only part of the answer. And if that's the only motivation you have, you're not going to succeed. Because the reality is, is that the scriptures also tell us that it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God that he puts in the believer. It is the presence and power of God in our lives that enables us to be able to do anything that in any way would ever be pleasing to God. So if you're, if you're focusing on behavior and actions and you've got to do this and do this and do this, but you've never experienced the grace of God and don't have the Spirit of God in you, then you don't have the ability to pull any of that stuff off in the first place. So Paul says it's really important. Understand God's love, God's grace, and God's goodness. And then we'll talk about some rules. Then we'll talk about some motives. Then we'll talk about lifestyle. And so that's how the book's laid out. The first three chapters, incredible doctrinal statement on who we are in Christ, our identity in him for those who have been saved. And then the last three chapters are, now because of who you are, this is what life looks like. And now we're closing this letter out with this conclusion. It seems like a weird thing to kind of focus a message on. Like, Jeff, what in the world are you going to pull out of Paul saying, sincerely, Paul? I mean, that's essentially what this is. But, but there's something in here that's just so crucial for us in this particular church, in this particular day, in this particular culture to understand that was also going on to some degree or another in that day. And so, so Paul starts off this conclusion with really two sort of elements. The first is he's talking about his boy. His boy Tychicus, who's coming into town, um, bringing the deliverer of the letter, coming into Ephesians or coming into the, that area. Um, he, he's kind of Paul's boy. He appears in the scriptures in Acts chapter 20, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 3. He is a faithful servant, not just of God, but he's been a faithful servant and messenger for Paul. He's a guy that Paul loves, most likely someone Paul raised up in the faith, a convert in Paul's ministry, and he's just sort of been Paul's boy for a long time. And so as Paul is doing things, he knows he can rely on this guy. And so he's writing this letter to these churches in the area of Ephesus, and he says, hey, so I'm sending this guy, and here's a little something about him. He is a faithful guy. You can trust him. And and he's going to be able to tell you a little bit more about what's going on with me. Now, the reason that he's there in the first place, the reason that we have a letter right now in the first place, instead of Paul going to these people he so desperately loved and telling them all these things himself, is why? Where's Paul? He's in jail. Paul's in prison. Paul's in a Roman prison, and he'll be dead not long after this, actually. And so he sent a guy and he's like, listen, uh, my, my boy's going to tell you about everything that's going on. I know you have a lot of questions. I know you have a lot of worries. I know there's a lot of things going on here. You're wondering, how does this imprisonment affect us? Because remember something, Paul's the guy who writes to people and says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he's in prison and will soon die. So if you're being told, hey, imitate me and he's in jail, you might have a question or two, right? You might have a question or two. 
And then it's not like you could pull up CNN or Fox News or some website and go, so what's going on in Rome? We're all the way down here in Ephesus, but I hear Paul's in jail. What is going on? And and so he's like, hey, so I I know you're going to have some questions. And so my guy's coming down and he's going to talk to you. He's going to minister to you. He's going to work through this kind of stuff. And he chooses him um, to kind of go and send that message. That's the first half. So we're already done with the first half, right? But then in verse 23 and 24, Paul closes out his letter with sort of a, you might almost call it a pastoral wish. Like he's going to commend something to them. Like, guys, grow in, like in, in his sort of closing, there's two things he wants to commend to his people. And so he starts out in verse 23 and he says, hey, peace be to the brothers. Another translation is actually, peace be to the bond servants or to the servants of God. Man, peace be to the brothers. Now, think about this for a second. It's so easy to just blow through that and just read that off as just some sort of conclusion in the same way that when we're reading a letter, get to the bottom, sincerely, Jeff. Sincerely, we're not going to dwell on sincerely. It's just a closing. You just throw it in there, right? But think about what he's saying here. Peace? Paul just said peace. That seems a little bit odd. It, seems, it sounds churchy, right? Peace, peace be to you. That's what the Pope does, right? Peace be to you. It's very churchy, sounds very Christian. Good way to close out a letter. Weird place to put it. Because what's the context? Well, what's he talking about in the whole section that Jeremy walked you guys through last week, verses 10 through 20? What's he talking about? He's talking about war. He's talking about war. And he's like, you're at war peace be unto you. That seems a little odd. That seems a little contradictory. I mean, just consider for a second what he says. In verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, be strong in the, in the Lord and the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. That's not usually something that you say to someone who's going off on a peaceful vacation. Hey, I'm going to Hawaii. Be strong, brother. Be strong in the Lord. It's going to be rough over there. Be strong. Not, not something you would say to someone who's going to rest and have peace. Verse 11, he says, armor up. Get the armor on, man. Get the armor on. Why? Because Satan is attacking you. Be at peace. What? What? Satan? Like the actual devil is attacking me? Doesn't really invoke a whole lot of thoughts of peace right there. It might even invoke horror to some degree if you're not really understanding where you are in Christ. What do you mean? Peace? Are you kidding me? Verse 12, he says, by the way, um, You think you're fighting people. You think you're fighting problems. You're not. You're only fighting demons. It's okay. (laughs) What? Only demons? I saw the exorcist, dude. Like, that doesn't sound fun. Uh, Only demons? I I thought it was just a person. No, it's it's, it's actually demons and forces and, and the devil himself that you're fighting. Verse 11, suit up because the days are evil. Like, there's so much evil out there. The, the days themselves, we just refer to them as evil altogether. It's not like there's evil in the days here and there. The days are evil. Have peace. What? I'm not peace. I'm stressing, man. Verse 14 through 17, then he starts describing the armor. You're going to need this. You're going to need this. You're going to need a helmet. You're going to need a shield. You're going to need a belt. You're going to need all this. stuff. I mean, you're just getting loaded down with all this stuff. Like, dude, I wanted sunscreen and a book, man. You're giving me all this. Like, what is going on? Loads you down with all this kind of stuff. Like, man, I just wanted to come to church. I didn't need, know I had to put on like a suit. I remember as a kid complaining I had to wear a tie to go to church. And he's like, no, you need to put this on and this and this and this and this. Verse 18, he says, pray constantly and always be alert. 
Not night-night, not have a good nap, not have a good rest, but you're going to need to pray all the time. And you're going to need to be alert all the time. How, how restful is that? I was camping one time, and we were, kinda, we were all sort of sleeping outside on these cots around this one campfire area at Howard Prairie Lake. And in the middle of the night, I was awoken to the fact that a bear was visiting our campsite. And it ended up wandering off, and it was kind of on its own way after that. But from that moment on, how much restful sleep did Jeff have? Zero. Because I was on alert. Every twig that snapped was a bear. Not just a bear, grizzly. We don't have them in Oregon. Didn't matter. I was watching. Like I was on alert. It's not restful. It's not peaceful. It's stressful to be on alert that entire time. And then verses 19 and 20 is the greatest. And by the way, as you're praying all the time, church, make sure you pray for me because I'm in jail. Do what I do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if it leads you to the same place as you're following me, well, I happen to be in a Roman prison right now and no no odds really of ever getting out and they're going to eventually decapitate me. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That makes no sense when you think about that first off. Like how do you tell someone at war? No one tells someone at war and have peace while you're there. You say, be careful, keep your eyes open, have your boys back, get a guy that's gonna have your back. Like there's all kinds of things you might say. Peace isn't one of them. And, and don't go super spiritual on me, okay? Just don't. Like, no, we will have peace. I know we're at war, but we will have peace in heaven. Well, yes and amen. But can we just understand like reality? He's saying we're at war. He's saying, church, you exist in a kingdom that is against everything that you stand for. Satan himself wants to bring down what you're doing. And and even though sometimes you think you're dealing with people next door, you are dealing with demonic powers you can't even understand that are coming after you. You need to be alert. You need to pray. You need to be on guard. You need to suit up with your armor and get ready and have peace. Like, how how do you do that? How do you have peace and do this? Well, l- let me ask you something. Let's forget, let's forget the Ephesus thing for just a second. Because it's really easy to look back and go, yeah, things were going to get rough. I mean, the whole city of Ephesus doesn't even really exist anymore other than just ruins. Paul's going to die. Christian persecution is going to be on the increase. It's going to be really, really difficult. So, yeah, I can see how they, those people, as they're looking at the future of church and what it looks like to be a community of gospel-saved people, life's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard to have peace. We understand that. But what about us? Because this letter is written to them and applies written to by the Spirit of God to us. So think about our church today. Think about our culture today. If you really think about the direction that we seem to be headed, the cultural shifts and changes, the belief systems that are rising in power, the belief systems that are dropping in power, all of these kind of things, and you think about the future of the church, are you filled with peace is that what tends to boil up from within, within as you think about those things? Or do you think about things like, maybe words like stress, fear, hopelessness, those kinds of anxiety, fight, but not peace. Well, I, I just had an incredible opportunity um, last week to, to actually travel up to um, Alaska, which I've never been to before. Not a bad place for a guy who has an affinity for the outdoors to go visit. 
Um, I can tell you this much, it is exactly as advertised if you've never been. I was literally driving along the something-something arm of the something-something ocean. It's names I can't pronounce, so I won't even try. And just you're just driving, and you look over to the side, oh, beluga whale. Like, no big deal. Like, you almost have to dodge them. Like, when you're up there, there's, like, stuff everywhere. It's like moose. Plural for moose is, it's moose? Mooses? Brian Regan, Moosen. Any Brian Regan fans? He's coming to Brit. You should go. Moosen. Um, whatever the case, like, this is just, just, it's just spectacular. I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm never going to get where I need to go if I don't stop pulling over to take pictures every five minutes. Like, a two-hour drive's taking me all day long. It was just a spectacular place. God absolutely shows off in Alaska. It's an amazing, amazing place. Um, here as well, though, Amen. Amen. Absolutely does. So, um, so I went up there though, not to sightsee or fish or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, the fishing was terrible. But um, other than that, I, I actually went up there because I got the opportunity to hang out with and and listen to um, a man named Ravi Zacharias for a couple of days while I was up there. And some of you guys know who he is. Some of you guys are drooling already. Like, drop some Ravi on us. And it's Ravi, not Robbie. In case you don't know who he is. If you don't know who he is. You could have so much YouTube fun for so long introducing yourself to Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is probably the most brilliant Christian thinker on the face of the earth today, I think without question actually. He is a absolute brilliant man. He's a incredible theologian and he's what's referred to as an apologist. So his job, speaking of armor of God, um, his job, if you will, is to defend the faith and teach others how to defend the faith against the attacks that are coming from all over the world. And so even when Ravi uh, makes decisions on where he's going to go and speak and all those kind of things, he actually tries to intentionally choose places where he can go into some of the most hostile settings for Christianity that there are, which tend to be universities, tend to be local universities. In fact, um, and I don't want to let too much cat out of the bag, but, but we're actually um, working with Ravi Zacharias Ministries to try to put something together to bring him here in another year and a half or so, including he wants to get set up to be able to go to uh, Southern Oregon University and spend some time over there. And so this is what Ravi does. He goes to these places and he defends the faith. And so, so he sits with the most hardcore, the most world-renowned, and the most intelligent atheists, um, unbelievers of every walk of life, and he sits with them and engages with them in an incredibly grace-filled, gospel-centered way in hopes that, that they might open their eyes and understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for their behalf as well. He is not the kind of apologetics guy that just wants to go win a debate and make people look stupid. In fact, their whole philosophy is that we don't answer questions, we answer people. And so the idea is we want to answer people. We want to understand what people are asking. In fact, I was just so blown away by what an incredible God-given ability he has when a question comes his way. Like, it's, he understands there's more than just the question. There's some sort of heart thing behind it. And he has just a God-given and I would say spirit-empowered discernment to be able to understand the motives and the struggles and the questions that are really going on in people's hearts. And he is an amazing resource. 
And so I got the privilege of getting to go over and spend some time with him, with friends Ward here who goes to the church. And, and we got to sit there the, the first night. We we're just sitting in a living room with like 20 people, like listening to him talk and talk about his ministry and what they've done and his experiences. And it was just an incredible opportunity. And as he was talking about kind of where we are as a country right now and, and kind of where we are culturally, he, he kind of went back, though you could go back and find roots really all the way back to Genesis 3. But, but he talked about a man that many of you guys are familiar with the name maybe, named Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche, a famous philosopher, I remember studying him when I was in college. He's famous for saying the following, um, ironically enough, in a collection of essays that's referred to as the gay science. And in that, he doesn't mean homosexuality. It means um, the joy of science was the, the name of his uh, um, essays. He wrote in 1882, God is dead. God remains dead. We killed him. Now we at first go, oh, who could say such a thing? But what, this is what he's saying. He's saying it's no longer necessary for people to have to depend on God anymore. We don't need that. We needed God at one point because we needed to try to understand why certain things are like the meaning of life, where we came from. And so that served a purpose, but now we've evolved and we have science and we have all this kind of stuff and we just don't need God anymore. And science has killed God. He's taken away the need, doesn't exist anymore. We don't need to depend on God for any of these things anymore. We can now understand life through that which is observable. But the interesting thing about Frederick Nietzsche is though he might be able to look and try to say, well, we can explain this and this and this on a scientific level. Science might explain all sorts of things. It doesn't explain morality. And so he knew this. And he knew that we had a challenge because he's saying we don't need God anymore to understand our origin. But where does our morality come from? And so we might be able to, they would allege, explain where life comes from, but we can't explain why we shouldn't take another's life. And as a result of this understanding, he actually said that the next century, which is the, the 20th century, so the 1900s, he wrote this in the late 1800s, he said the century of the 1900s would be the bloodiest century in the history of the world and would be defined by madness. And he said this because he understood taking God out of the equation will change everything. The morality will be gone. People can just do whatever they want. And, and he understood the ramifications of that were going to be bloody and maddening. And he was absolutely right. The, the, 19, the 1900s, the 20th century, was the bloodiest century in the, the history of recorded civilization. Um, the, there were more blood spill in that century than all the others combined. And the, it was just a horrible, just war after war, conflict after conflict, genocide after genocide. And it was an absolute bloody, bloody century. And then along the same lines, we could talk about the maddening things that happened in the 1900s, but he himself would unfortunately become a great example of that because he himself would end his last days in an asylum. He went mad himself. Um, he, he then was riddled with strokes, had pneumonia. His last words were, mother, I'm dumb. And he died. But this is the guy that a lot of modern kind of thought and where we are today is based on that. Still today, you're, you may not be super familiar with him. That might seem so long ago and you go, oh, well, he died. We don't care. But I assure you, all the universities are teaching about this guy. 
All of them. I remember studying them at North Carolina State University in a philosophy class. We were taught about Friedrich Nietzsche and we were taught, taught that that stuff's gone and now we need, we were even told, Christians in the class were told, you need to come up with new ways to, to answer the arguments that you have. And so in an ethics class, they would divide the room and you would debate things from abortion, euthanasia, all kinds of stuff. And if you brought up the Bible as an argument, you would immediately get shut down. And they would tell you, and, and that, that was a conservative school. And that, that professor would say, and it wasn't that he was even an unbeliever necessarily. I don't know where he was, but what he was saying is to win these debates in the world out there, you can't draw on a book that most people don't follow anymore. You need a new set of arguments. It's a continuation of the same thing that Friedrich Nietzsche had been saying for a long time. Out there, God is dead. Those people aren't thinking about God. Those people aren't caring about God's morals. And so if you go out there and try to win your arguments with that, you're going to lose. So you need, to, you need something different to back who you are. Something more observable. Something more real. And I, I assure you, that's the philosophy of our universities today, but, but much more aggressive than now. Um, Ravi was saying this. He said that, that uh, the universities in our culture today, um, they are absolutely for and they pursue um, diversity within every area of the institution. The student body, beliefs, all those kind of things with one exception, and that is philosophical diversity. They have no room for philosophical diversity. So what they teach is what they believe, and that's the one that you're going to get incredible pushback if you try to go against that in the university system up there. And he, he breaks it down in a way, um, I had seen him do this online, and he walked us through this as well while we were there. That's just really helpful that I want you guys to kind of get an understanding on. And we're, don't worry, we're not going too deep into the apologetics, but this really matters. Ravi was telling us that, that really if you take all of society and all of culture, there's really only three different types of culture that exist. You could categorize every culture in the world in one of three different categories. If you guys could put the slide up there for the note takers that want to learn how to spell some stuff. Um, the three different classifications or types of culture are this. We have theonomous cultures, heteronomous cultures, and autonomous cultures. And th this is what this means. A theonomous culture is a culture that is based on God. That's what it means, theo, God, a theonomous culture. This is what our culture, the Jewish culture, many different cultures were originally based on. You would say, e even in America, in the earliest days, if people didn't believe in God per se, well, we had written into even our foundational documents as a nation things like, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That, that there's a certain set of laws that are out there that are just there. That this is what we build our life on. And, and you would just say that it's just instinctive into people that they understand certain things. That this is right and this is wrong. This is allowed and this isn't. And, and of course, we in the Christian worldview would say that those things are based on what? On the scriptures, on God, on his word and his will. And that's what the American society and culture used to be. Um, that's what a lot of cultures used to be. It is not what the American culture is anymore. It's not. No matter how much you pine for those days, that's not our culture anymore. Understand? Right? Would we agree? Yes, we agree. Five people. We're getting, we're, some are waking up. Now, the second option is a heteronomous culture. We hate this one. A heteronomous culture means a few people at the top call all the shots for everybody else underneath. So um, whether you're talking about uh, Nazi Germany, whether you're talking about um, 
Islam today, whatever the case may be, um, monarchies, things like that, where there's a few people at the top and they dictate everything for everyone below. So, so you see like in the nation of Islam, for example, you see um, in Iran, Iraq, it's the, the people on top. They are the ones who say, this is how you can dress. This is how you can think. This is what you can say. This is what you can't say. This is what the laws are. They're the ones that dictate everything from morality to just normal common law for everyone. The few at the top set it for everyone. Do we like that in America? Not at all. That's why we rebelled in the first place, right? We don't like that in America. So the third option is an autonomous culture, which means everyone has the freedom to come up with their own basis, their own moral code, their own belief system on their own. And it's not right for for us to determine that for everyone else. You just find your own way, find your own truth, find your own belief system. Now, uh, hold up a number between one, two, and three. If you would say, what is the one that most people would say America either is or is trying to be today? One, two, or three. I'll help you if you don't have your hand up. It's three, right? An autonomous culture. Don't tread on me. Don't put your beliefs on me. Don't tell me what I have to think. That may be true for you, but that's not true for me. It's what's referred to as relativism. What your laws and your rules in your place maybe, but I'm different and I believe different. And I have a different background. I have a different upbringing. So, so I'm going to think differently. I'm going to, I don't need to believe what you believe. We can all believe our own thing. But there's a huge problem that comes up every single time any culture on the planet has tried to be an autonomous culture throughout history, and we're living it right now. And and the issue is this. In an autonomous culture, at a certain point, the moment that your belief system conflicts with someone else's belief system, what's the temptation? We don't want to be autonomous anymore. Your beliefs are are in conflict with me and I don't like your beliefs anymore. And so the temptation is, is to instantly switch from an autonomous culture to a heteronomous culture where the people in power control what everybody else has to believe and everyone else has to fall in line. This is exactly what's going on in our culture today. In my home state, in North Carolina, this is happening big time right now. You've been following any news? North Carolina passed a law with regards to gender identity. And they said, we have chaos in the men's rooms and in the bathrooms. It's just chaos. I mean, you, you want to talk about the importance of understanding identity? Look what starts happening when you no longer understand what identity in Christ looks like. It starts to drift into every other area of life. And now people don't even know whether they're male or female anymore. It was in a pretty simple kid's book when I was growing up. But apparently it's more confusing today. And, and so now there's these issues with regards to gender identity. And so North Carolina, trying to solve this whole bathroom issue decided, okay, we're going to set a law that says you can only go in the bathroom of your birth gender. Whatever you're born with, we don't care what the surgeon did. Whatever your birth was, that's the bathroom that you go into. And, and some people have just lost their minds over this. Now, now here, here's the thing. There's no great solution to that question, okay? That law doesn't fix it. There's some people that are touting the law like, yes, North Carolina's taking a stand. It still stinks. Because now you got children going into bathrooms having, what is going on? He's in a dress, but he's at the urinal. And I don't know what to do with that. And you got kids that are in bathrooms with all kinds of confusion. Like there's all sorts of issues that come with that. 
Or you flip the law around, now you got men going into women's bathrooms. Like there is, there's all sorts of problems and confusion that comes with it. So there's, there's no great solution to it. It's terrible. The whole issue is terrible because it was never meant to be that way. But be that as it may, North Carolina makes the law and says, this is what we're going to do. Birth, gender only determines what bathroom you're going to go into. And so what was the response to the powerful few? Well, PayPal, for example, instantly pulls out, says, we're not going to build our new headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina anymore. And 400 jobs and all the money that comes with PayPal leaves the state. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about right here. North Carolina trying to be an autonomous state, if you will. People in the state trying to choose on an autonomous level what laws they want to pass and which ones they don't. The laws get passed and instantly, instead of going, well, they're free to believe what they want. North Carolina can choose what they want. It shifts and it becomes, that's wrong. Your beliefs conflict with me. And so we're going to start making some power plays so that you have to fall in line with our beliefs. And this is where we live today as a culture. The, the more that Christianity continues to push against some of the things in the culture that are out there, watch and see. This is why it, it it's, have you ever felt this or heard this or you're like, everybody talks about freedom of beliefs, but I don't feel like I'm free to live my beliefs. This is what happens. This is the reality of the kind of culture that we live in. And so there's people, even President Obama just said that the law should be overturned. And so you have power at the front. And, and here's just the reality. It will be. It will be. There's North Carolina is the number three movie making state in the United States and movie production is running for the hills out of North Carolina. They're not going to keep doing that. Sooner or later, the bottom line will be the bottom line and that's what they're going to do. The hypocrisy in it is stunning because in the same month in China, the Chinese government affirmed a ban on gay marriage and affirmed that homosexual lifestyles are not even allowed to be on TV. But you won't hear too many major companies raising a stink over that because there's a lot of money to be made with our production being in China. So don't kid yourself. The bottom line is the bottom line. But be that as it may, the law will be overturned. It will, it'll change. That's what's going to happen. So when you think about those kind of things, what goes through your mind? Peace? Church, you're at war with the culture that's out there. Christianity is at war with the culture that's out there. Be at peace. No, for most people, go read the comment section of the average news story on any website that you might choose, any newspaper that you might choose about these arguments, and just take a little notepaper and put it off to the side and put a little tick mark every time you see anything that sounds like peace. I assure you, you'll have a free piece of paper that you can write a letter to someone later on. There's no peace. There's war. We get worked up and fight. We got to, uh, uh, and it goes back and forth, back and forth on all this kind of stuff. We need to, uh, uh, and you, you watch this on the TV and you listen on the news. Whatever side of the belief you're on, you get fired up and you get angry. And there's nothing about peace that comes from any of that. So how in the world can Paul say, to that church or to this church, church, war, you're, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to fight the culture. And in fact, the more you act like a gospel-centered community, the more at war you're going to find yourself with the culture that's out there. The more you preach the gospel, the more you're going to get beat back in at places as well. The more you stand for holiness, the more Satan's going to want to try to knock you back. How, how do you then say to that culture, now be at peace? Well, it's because of chapter 1. 
See, this is the drawback of the way that we read our Bibles. Like we study chapter at a time. But if you got a letter from your wife or your boyfriend or whatever, I doubt you read one paragraph and put it away for a week, study the next paragraph, put it away. No, you read the whole thing, right? And what does chapter one say? Read it again with me. Chapter one in Ephesians verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul would say, so you guys hear that? That's peace. You know, but the culture and we're at war and things are changing. I, I don't know about you, but I just read that he has a plan for all of time. And that he's going to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and on earth. That he's, or, that he's obtained and ordained. That he's working everything according to his plan. And that our inheritance has already been secured in, in Christ. So, so I, you're freaking out about the culture, but why? He's already assured all of this. You're going to have peace. If not here, then on heaven. But you can have peace even here in light of the conflicts that you might see. In light of the political or ethical or moral disagreements you might have. Not because you're winning and not because you're losing. But because Christ has won. And no matter what we're dealing with today, he wins. Do you understand these are the same battles they fought in Ephesus? This isn't new. God's not in heaven looking down on the situation in America going, man, I was counting on them. What are we going to do now? He's not doing that at all. He's not shocked. He's not blown away. He's not got, all right, nine, one. And if that law doesn't pass, I'm hitting the other one. Like he's not, he's not doing that. He's totally at peace because he's totally in control. And he's seen the beginning. It started in shalom, in peace, in the garden. And then he tells us the end in the book of Revelation that there will be shalom, but not in a garden, then in a city, in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, so church, be at peace. Be at peace. The cultural things going on, you might not like them, and they might get a lot worse. But you can be at peace. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to write angry letters to the editor. We don't have to be chicken little running around saying the sky's falling. We can be at peace 
Because God is in control of all things. And I would tell you this, every anxiety you have in your life, I understand clinical anxiety and stuff, but, but every regular anxiety that any of us have anywhere in our life is probably rooted eventually in a failure to understand, believe, and live in this. That's the truth. You're afraid you don't have, you're not going to get married. You'll never have a spouse. You can be at peace. God's got a plan for you and it's going to work out. You're afraid you're going to lose your house because you lost your job. You don't know what you're going to do. You can be at peace. God's in heaven. He's preparing a place for you. Big, big house with lots and lots of room where we can play football. Sorry. (laughs) Christian music. What are you afraid of? Look how Romans 8 puts it. You guys know Romans 8, right? Whenever hard times come, you can guarantee sooner or later someone's going to come up to you or they're going to send you a Thomas Kincaid card or something's going to come and they're going to say, remember, God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord according to his purposes, right? We know that. It can get used in such a cheesy way sometimes that it drives us crazy when we're in the middle of a storm. Church, be careful when you throw those things out. Have some grace for people. Mourning is a godly thing too. God mourns. But, But the scriptures tell us That we know, put these words up, Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But look what else he has to say. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's that adoption theme again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. You're like, fine, Jeff, fine. Okay, we're saved. We're adopted. Great. That doesn't have anything to do with the struggles that I'm going through and the opposition that I face. Well, he would disagree because look what he says next. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Same context. You've heard that phrase before too. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. What's the actual answer? No one knows this. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. This side of the church seems to know it. You guys, I should tell you, if God's for you, no one can be against you. Right? All right, let's try this again. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. And then look what he says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, there's a social issue that you're facing and you're facing opposition and you're frustrated and there's anxiety, whether it's a law change, whether it's whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a social issue. You're just dealing with this opposition. You're like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? What Paul's saying here is like, look, God killed sin and death trumped it and defeated Satan for you. Why are you freaking out about that? Your biggest problem you will ever face for your entire life has already been dealt with. And not just dealt with, but look at the extent to which God would go to make sure that that problem is dealt with. And you're worried about a law or a coworker that won't leave you alone or some sort of opposition. Why are you worried? God is for you. He would send his own son to die for you. Why are you afraid? They're against me. Nobody's against you. Not comparatively speaking. You got the Super Bowl champs playing against a little league team. You'll be fine. And he keeps going. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 
Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, swords, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep to slaughter. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, that means I know this, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, there better be an amen coming, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will hurt you, church. You have nothing to freak out about. Oh, it might get hard. Christ guarantees it. But you can have peace because Christ has defeated, and the Bible says he made a folly of the principles and powers that would seek to come against us. So how can we, when we understand that, when we understand our identity in Christ, what he's done for us, who we are in him, his plan for us in our life, how can you not be at peace? Unless we're spending too much time on the online websites than we are in our Bibles. We need to know these truths. Because these truths are self-evident. That God wins. And we have nothing anywhere to fear. Not Satan himself. Amen? We can have peace. And this is why this is really important, church. Because if we don't understand that part, we'll miss the second part. Don't worry, we're almost done. But he says, I want you to have peace to you, brothers. Peace to you. But what else does he also ask them to have in Ephesians chapter 6? And love. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. The typical response when we in our sinful fallen flesh experience opposition, when we get punched in the face, when we get slapped, when we get attacked, our first response is we want to go back at them and win. We want to lash out. We want to deal with this. And it seems right. It seems like we're going to fight for justice and Paul gave us armor, so let's go do this. But all things are to be done in what? In love. Paul, Paul says this. There's, a, there's a, an interesting thing that happens later on in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. The church of Ephesus that Paul's writing to here, it comes up again. Did you know that? Christ himself, angel of God, speaking to the church in Ephesus. And in, Ephesians, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 2, we've got the text here, but look, look what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, I know your works. You toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. You hear what he's saying? Those belief systems that came up against you, you weren't having it. Good job. Like, I've seen how you fought back against those things. You wouldn't listen to those lies. You stood on the truth. He says, I see all that. Verse 3, and I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
That's right, Jesus, we got our armor on. Paul taught us about it. And, and the, the enemy was coming and we suited up and we were like, liar, liar, pants on fire. And we fought opposition and we fought false teachers and we fought all this stuff because we were right. Verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And he goes on with a pretty, pretty gnarly, uh, and this is what it's going to look like if I don't. Listen up, church. We can get so fired up about armor of God and so fired up about truth and so fired up about apologetics and the Ravi Zacharias stuff and the truth and all that kind of stuff that we can wield that kind of stuff as a sword that's intended to chop people in half and leave them bloody on the ground. And that's not right. Do you understand that the biblical laws concerning, for example, homosexuality that are in the Bible, they're not in here so that we win debates. They're in here because God loves homosexuals and he wants to save them and he wants them to not hurt anymore. He understands the real questions in their hearts that people are dealing with and he loves them. And so if we, the church, get so fired up on truth and so fired up on doctrine and so fired up on these things that we want to just go run out there like a linebacker and knock anyone down who gets in our way, we are outside the will of God and are not on his program. The gospel was given to you when you were at your worst. And now it's trusted with you that you may take it to the worst. And God wants to save. Man, we get so fired up on these things, whether it's homosexuality or whatever the case may be, the different issues that are out there, we get so fired off. And do you realize we come off hate-filled? There's a reason that so many people think Christians are just hate mongers, because lots of them are, but not our God. He loves the prostitute. He loves the pervert. He loves the sinner. He loves the murderer. He loves the child abuser. He loves the homosexual. He loves everyone. And he has saved you from just as bad. And he wants you to be part of his team in reaching out and saving more. So grow in trust. Grow in truth. Know the doctrine. Know these things. But know why the truth was given to you in the first place. It was given to you to save, not kill. It was given to us that we might reach out to people, that we might love people, that we might not fight and beat the culture, but win the culture to God. And, and this was one of the things I loved so much about spending that time with Ravi last week, because here's the truth of it is that that small session that we were in on Sunday night with that group of people, there were like politicians in there and business leaders and guys like that. And we had some Q&A uh, time there with Ravi. And, and Ravi was talking about his plan to want to answer the questions of the world and the culture, specifically with the youth. He has a real passion for reaching the youth. And so he laid this stuff out there, was kind of inviting people to, to kind of get on board and talking about how he wants to be a resource for churches more and more and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and then there were some politicians and some different people in the room who, I mean, let's just face it, let's be honest. If you have a time to do Q&A with Ravi Zacharias in a living room while you're having like wine and cheese, take advantage of it, right? And so there were guys and they're asking all sorts of questions, but they, it was amazing how many of the questions were political. Like, what about ISIS? 
What about these laws? And what about this? And what about this? And Ravi was so, so much wisdom and so much grace kept coming back and coming back and coming back to his mission. And finally, at one point, he said, guys, you have to understand, politics is downstream from culture. If, if you want politics to change, you got to change the hearts of the people that are involved in all this stuff in the first place. And the way God changes hearts is through the gospel, not through laws. He said, that's why we want to be not a political organization. We want to be an organization that it comes alongside as a resource for the church. Because God's chosen mechanism to change the hearts of people out there is the local church. Not politics, not websites, not blogs. The church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so church, we have been given, you, you want to change the culture? Spend more time witnessing Spend more time telling people about Jesus and spend more time understanding the grace of Jesus for your own self and less time fighting on Facebook and comment sections in the newspaper. And I say this with love because I'm that guy. Like, I don't even listen to news radio anymore because I just can't handle it. But the grace of God changed. It's changed me. It's changing me. And I pray that it's changing you. Amen? We have a great mission, church. And we win. We win. Will you stand with me? Sam's going to close this in song and we're going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you for the hope that you give us. I thank you, God that we don't have to freak out. We don't need anxiety because we have total peace knowing that you, our heavenly father, are also the creator and master of heaven and earth, that you are ultimately sovereign over everything, that our inheritance is assured, our position is assured, our future is secured. And Lord, we know why. That came because of the death of your son and because of the perfect life he lived before that. So God, I just pray for an increasing awareness and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hearts and minds of everyone here. I pray, God, that your gospel, your grace, and your truth would motivate us in every single area of life, from politics to just talking with our neighbors. But God, we're also... Uh, we're like pendulums, Lord. We can swing too far the other way too. And so God, I pray that you would temper um, any zeal that might come from wanting to stand on your truth, temper it with love. Right now, Lord, all of us in this room, we can think about how gracious and graceful you've been with us. Lord, you could have beat me down with your words so many times, but you've just kept calling and you kept reaching and you kept loving. You were so patient with me, so gentle and so loving. God, may that be what we're known for. Will you bless, Lord, I, I pray for this church because this is the one we're in. I pray, Lord, in this church, may we be known as people of the book who are filled by your grace, saved because of your gospel, with arms wide open to love the lost, Lord. May we not be known for our agenda, but for yours. And your agenda is that none should perish and that all should be saved. 
So God, give us the strength to actually do it. Lord, help our lives to actually make sense compared to the things that we see in scripture. Lord, don't let us just fall back into the cultural trappings that are outside this building. But Lord, even as the rain pours over this building, Lord, may your spirit wash over every one of us, rid us of things in our culture that might prevent your mission. And Lord, help us to spread your word, your gospel, and your love to everyone around us. And God, now, even as we just close in this song, we praise you, Lord, for your majesty and might, for the reality that you win, that nothing can touch us because you have. Nothing can defeat us because you fight for us. That we are more than conquerors, not because we're awesome, but because you are. So Lord, may you just receive this last song as a gracious and great filled, Lord, just grateful, just song of praise and thanks for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, let's sing.